Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You think you know London? Well, guess again. There are so many incredible gems and hidden histories just waiting to be discovered. In this jam-packed series, we'll take you to every corner of the superb international city that is London. Visiting secret local haunts, meeting the people behind them, and unpacking the history of London through their eyes. Hop in and take a ride with us in the London Black Cab and see this fantastic city in the fast lane. Today I'm heading to the East End and Whitechapel. A part of London most famous for the Whitechapel murders and Jack the Ripper. The area is rich in history and one of the most multicultural parts of London. The East End was considered the poorest area in Victorian times, but has gradually become one of the coolest, full of culture with fascinating places to visit, eat and drink. I've come to meet historian David Charnick, who's going to tell me all about Whitechapel's murky and often dangerous past. Well, David, it's good to see you again. And I know you're a knowledgeable tour guide for this area as well as other areas of London. We're sitting here in the council chamber of the Town Hall Hotel, um, which was formerly, I believe, Bethnal Green Town Hall. That's correct. I have lived five minutes away from here, but I don't know that much about the area. What can you tell me? Everything starts to change really in the 1700s. Before then, it's a very rural area. It's a hamlet. And um, just down the road, um, a grocer of the city, John Kirby, he had his country house built at Bethnal Green in 1570. Like a lot of people, these big houses appeared um, close to the city, but in open areas. So courtiers, merchants, that kind of thing, would have their country places here. Uh, it all starts to change really in the 1700s when the uh, silk weaving industry comes into the area. In the 1680s a lot of Protestants fled France because of persecutions from the Catholic government and the weavers settled on the edges of the city and that very soon became Bethnal Green's trade. And then it got taken over really by furniture making. Uh, cabinet making, joinery, that kind of thing. That became the dominant industry in Bethnal Green in the mid to late 1800s, really because of the Regent's Canal bringing the timber up from the riverside sawmills. 
There was a huge growth in the early 1800s. Uh, London was expanding to become the great metropolis at the heart of possibly the most extensive empire we've ever known. And uh, with the growth of the docks, with the growth of trade and light industry, it attracted people like a magnet. And suddenly what was a semi-rural hamlet was now a suburb of a thriving city and uh, very overcrowded and consequently very insanitary as well with lots of problems that that caused. Well, the area um, has seen a lot of change in the last few decades, but it's an area that's seeing a lot of um, regrowth and regeneration in the last few years. It's becoming quite a, a tourist attraction, really. People are coming to Bethnal Green to experience its character and uh, its sort of atmosphere and its diversity too. There's such a mix of um, if you like old school London, the sort of fish and chips, pie and mash type London, uh, along with the various traces of immigrant communities over time and the fairly recent hipster culture that's been coming in and bringing in with it a lot of affluence and new approaches and so on. Now the East End has um, a reputation for being grimy and grubby. Um, I think that's starting to disappear, isn't it? The dirty East End, that really is sort of mid to late 19th century when the term the East End actually comes into being in the 1880s. And that's the East End of Jack the Ripper. It's the East End of cholera and typhus and things like this and private burial grounds being choked up with burials. Uh, whereas in the 20th century, there were great advances and there's been a lot of investment by local authority and businesses as well, which has brought the area um, into a much better and much more comfortable situation. One of the other things about the East End that everybody knows is the word Cockney. Mm -hmm. What's the true definition of a Cockney? Well, the first thing you've got to remember is a Cockney is not an East Ender. A Cockney is a Londoner. And the traditional story is that you have to be born within the sound of Bow Bells. Now, some people think that means Bow Church, which is down on the eastern side of the borough, but it's actually St Mary Le Beau in Cheapside in the city. And the bell there was used as the curfew bell. So when the city gates were going to close back in medieval times, they'd ring the bell. So anyone working in the fields would come in. So the sound of the bell had to carry far over the fields. And if you go back to pre-industrial times, I've been told that you could hear the bells from Highgate and Hampstead. It carried very far. So that's the traditional meaning of the word Cockney. Um, but it does tend to get a bit um, misused as being exclusively East Enders. There's a great deal to see in the East End that gets neglected, to be honest. I believe there's a tree there that's causing some consternation. Yeah, it's a mulberry tree that's supposed to be many centuries old. The thing about silk weaving um, coming into England and specifically to London, there were attempts made actually to grow mulberry trees in England for the silkworms, because you get the silk from the um, cocoon that the grub lives in but it never really took off. So there are occasional little mulberry trees here and there which are of huge historic significance. I've noticed a war memorial in Cypress Street. After the First World War, that's where you get the war memorials coming in. I mean, there was a huge emphasis on the cost of the First World War in the hopes that people would remember it and wouldn't repeat the mistake. And so you get the big war memorials, but also a lot of streets lost a number of their uh, their inhabitants, their husbands, fathers, and also sons. So yeah, you get a number of these little local ones, and they're a reminder of just how great the human cost of war actually was. You need to take the time, I think, and just look at these things and think, yeah, actually, there's a lot of work gone into that. It's well worth the looking at. And of course, they all have stories behind them.
I'm heading to the Museum of Childhood in Bethnal Green, which is part of the Victoria and Albert Museum. Morning, Derek. My name is Rian Harris, and I have the great privilege of being the director of this extraordinary institution. Can you tell me something about the history of the building first? Well, the building has a wonderful history. If you look at the fantastic architecture behind us, the ironwork in particular was part of the original V&A in South Kensington. After the Great Exhibition in 1851, they built a temporary structure. It lasted for a short period of time. They then demolished that building, but they carried parts of the ironwork to the East End of London to create a new museum. So the museum opened in 1872, and it was called the East London Museum of Art and Science. It continues as a place where all different sorts of exhibitions happen, but not specifically for children or about childhood. From the 1920s onwards, a visionary curator called Arthur Sabin noticed that there were loads of local kids running around this building and they weren't really engaging with any of the objects on display. So he decided to create a corner specifically for children and encourage various people to donate objects that would be attractive to the children. And he grows this bit of the collection, but it doesn't actually become a proper museum of childhood until 1974, where a very well-known director of the v at the time, Roy Strong, creates it as the National Museum of Childhood and giving it for the first time in its history a clear curatorial remit. Now, the layout of the museum, I believe it's sort of in four galleries, so to speak. First of all, there's a gallery called Moving Toys. It's about encouraging children and families to understand about movement and how toys are constructed when they physically move. Could be a simple clockwork toy right through to quite a sophisticated optical toy. Our second gallery is called Creativity. It's about objects that will encourage creativity in children, will get them excited and interested in doing creative things. And in that gallery, we have examples of children's own creativity. So drawings or works they might make themselves. And then in our third gallery, we call the Childhood Galleries. And these are essentially a bit more sort of social historical, where we look at the kind of clothes children wore, the kind of objects that are used to care for children historically. And the fourth gallery we have is taken up primarily by our temporary exhibition space. And our current exhibition is called Game Plan. And it's about the history of board games. And there really is something for everybody in that exhibition. It starts off with a game of Senate, that was a very ancient Egyptian game, and it goes right up to date to computerised games. But it's all about based on the board. So what we're discovering is families are coming in, you've got grandparents, parents and children all coming together and playing really hard and being really competitive in here. There's also a small bit there, a permanent part of the gallery, that is called Good Times. It's about going on holiday, being by the seaside, joining clubs like guides and scouts. It's about the good times of childhood. So what early exhibits have you got here? The earliest object in the museum is an Egyptian paddle doll from 1300 BC. We don't have many things that old, but it is obviously a very old piece and one of the real star objects on display in the galleries. We have a programme where we have various festivals across the year. They often take place outside the museum because we've got fantastic grounds. So we celebrate St George's Day. People from all over the world come to celebrate that festival. We also have a big summer festival. It's a bit like East London's Summer Fate, where everybody comes and enjoys that too. So we have lots of ways to try and make the museum as inclusive as possible. And I think we're lucky because we are both a local community museum and national museum, and we also have an international profile. It's quite unusual for a museum to stretch from community right through to international. So do you have a favourite item, or do you have somewhere where you tend to go more often? I love so many of them, but if I have to choose, I love the dolls' houses. I think they're incredible. And they teach you about everything, about how people lived, how they interacted with each other, 
gender divides, class divides, because you've got servants in the household, you've got women that occupy particular spaces, children occupy particular spaces. They're also exquisitely beautiful as well. So you can think about aesthetics and taste from other times. You've got them all completely encapsulated in one small box and people love them. They are some of the most popular things in the museum. They were actually used partly as status symbols historically to teach young women how to keep house because they'd be managing, you know, big, huge houses. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's only later on, really, when they start to become actual playthings. It's not just about nostalgia, it's about memory and identity. It goes straight through to here, and that's what this museum is really about. It's about connecting with your past, if you're a child today, connecting with who you are today, and then looking forwards. Tucked away in the crypt of a 19th century church, the Royal London Hospital has a museum covering the history of the hospital and also the wider history of medicine in the East End. Welcome Derek to the Royal London Hospital Museum. My name is Richard Monnier and I'm archivist curator here. We show a number of exhibits on the hospital and the history of the Royal London and also nursing and medical education. We've got nursing uniforms, we've got works of art, items about dentistry, and we've got a little exhibit on the Whitechapel murders and Jack the Ripper. Entering the place, it looks quite spectacular. What can you tell me about the history of the museum? Well, we've had a museum here, and the archives were here as well, from about 1989. Medical science has improved greatly. Can you give me any examples of what it would have been like in the olden times? We show medical instruments and surgical instruments from the 18th century up until maybe the mid-20th century, and, and it shows a dramatic change in how they were uh, used and how they were designed, from amputation sores, which were very large and very difficult to clean, pretty incredible things like cups of bloodletting and cauterizing irons for stopping bleeding. They would burn the wound. It sort of shows how really kind of primitive medicine was to, you know, very kind of minute scalpels, suturing, and that kind of thing that was used later on is quite radical and, and dramatic. A very good example of something we have um, from the 18th century, it's the 1762 diet sheet, and it shows what patients were given. A number of things are striking. I think people were given quite a lot of butter. People probably know now that the water was, was very contaminated and it was safer to drink beer. Well, leading on from that, I did notice an X-ray machine. We have a 1930s X-ray control unit. It came over from the States and we were using X-rays here probably the first hospital to do so in this country, around 1896. They were only discovered the year before that, yeah, and then yeah. we realised that we could use them to, to look you know, at, at what's inside somebody. It was a needle in a foot. We've actually got that photograph oh, taken have. from the X-ray here. Amongst the uniforms and the medical implements, what else have we got here? Something you wouldn't associate with the London Hospital, but it's part of George Washington's false teeth. Oh, made, tell me more. Made in 1791, it's encased in a frame with a letter written by George Washington. The other half, I think, is in America. Don't know whether they'll be reunited or not. <laughs> That's interesting enough, though, isn't it? Well, I noticed um, there were several prominent characters that I've heard of. We're very well known to have uh, an exhibit on the elephant man, Joseph Merrick. Initially a patient and then an inmate at the hospital in the 1880s and his original skeleton is still um, a specimen in the Pathology Museum collection at the university. So the skeleton on display here is an exact replica? Yeah, it was made in America a few years ago and it means that people can see 
his condition in a very kind of realistic way. No visit to Whitechapel is complete without mentioning the darker side. Um, what's the connection with Jack the Ripper with the museum? We have one or two items on display. There's a plan of one of the crime scenes that was done by a surveyor to the City of London. And one particular murder um, involved our surgeon, uh, Thomas Oakenshaw. And he was asked to look at a piece of a human kidney which was sent in the post to a kind of member of a vigilance committee. And we ended up with copies of letters written by Jack the Ripper to Openshaw and Mr Lusk. This is the From Hell letter that people know about. They're the best surviving copies. Dennis Seaver's house in Spitalfields is a time capsule, portraying the lives of a fictitious family of Huguenot silk weavers from 1724 to the start of the 20th century. My name's David Milne. I'm the curator of Dennis Seaver's house. 18th century silk merchant house in Spitalfields, literally 10 minutes walk from Liverpool Street Station. This house was built 300 years ago during speculation for the new immigrant classes of the Huguenots that came here. So the Huguenots arrived in the late 17th century from France in exile. So they were given free passage to come and settle in this area. And over a period of 100 years, they made Spitalfields one of the wealthiest and powerful um, silk districts in all the world. Dennis Seavers bought this house in the 1970s, saved it from demolition. And then people came to see how this young 30-year-old chap from California was living in this extraordinary way. Completely lit by candlelight, heated by open fires, furnished with period fittings. And then he began to create and tell a story of the people that would have once lived within this house and these streets. Every person that has lived and occupied a chamber or a space within the house for the last three centuries, when they had some money, they altered it. As Dennis traveled through the house, he began this gradual discovery of additions and people's lost lives, the ghost of them, was still here. So that became a basis for a story that takes you from the early 18th century into the late 19th century. Each chamber relates to a period, so all the collections are slightly different. In the early chambers, things are very simple. When you get into the 19th century, things are made by machines because it's an age of industry. Everything you see behind me this is all Chinese export. This overmantle is based on the designs of Daniel Merritt, who was cabinet maker to the king, taken from an illustration from one of his catalogues. If you couldn't afford them, you could get an image and get a local craftsman to make it for you. Every single piece you see behind me is stacked up individually, and every single piece comes off to be washed and put back in its individual space, so that in a hundred years, this room will still look like this. One of the things that makes this house stand out from many others is not how it's built, the things that are within it, but actually the way that they are within it. Everything's living and everything's telling a story because this house was created by a man who lived here. He's only been dead for a few years now. Your experience in the house, of course, is, is so unique when you're here. 
everybody else around you is silent and they don't interrupt your own experience. There's nobody to lead you through, there's very little information and we have a sound installation. You find the story yourself and in every chamber there's a tiny little note reminding you of the person you might be looking at. It might be a shoe tossed on the floor, it might be a, a gown lying across a bed, it might be a wig just hanging on the wig stand. But you look at the painting and see the people of the stories that's unfolding before you. Every chamber you walk into, someone's either just got out of bed, they just left a table, they're in the kitchen baking, they're having a drink, so that our visitors are completely spellbound. The evidence of daily life is as real as it's ever going to be. At 19 Princelet Street in Spitalfields stands a unique London building. Only open a few days a year, it contains London's Museum of Immigration. I'm speaking with Chair of the Museum, Susie Sims. In my 20 years of teaching the knowledge to potential London taxi drivers, this building is an important point that they have to know the location of. We love being on the knowledge, it's very special to us because this is such a special building because it captures so much about the East End of London. It's been here for over 300 years and it was originally first lived in by refugees. The formal title is The Museum of Immigration. It's a grade two star listed building. It's one of the most important heritage buildings in all of London and Britain. How long has it been a museum? It was founded as a museum in the early 1980s. And this is the oldest museum of immigration in all of Europe. It was the first ever to be founded. Could you tell me something about the previous occupants of the building? The first ones were a family named Augier, and they were French Protestants, and they had fled from France as refugees, hiding their children so they couldn't be found by soldiers. And these French Huguenots were very dominant in this area. About 90% of the people living in these streets were French-speaking Huguenots. And this Augier family made beautiful silk uh, fabric. That was very, very important in this area. But the Huguenots also found a great deal of discrimination. People in the city didn't always want to give jobs to newly arrived Huguenots, even though they were very skilled workers. Lots of French Huguenots had to take much more badly paid. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Need low-skilled jobs just to survive. Could you tell me about anybody else who sort of followed them on? Because I know the area changes dramatically. Well, people came from all over the world to this area, but there were certain really big waves of migrants. The Irish, people coming to find work, people fleeing from famine, finding a home here. Then people coming from Eastern Europe, Jewish people fleeing from religious discrimination, coming to find a new home and safety here. And then after the Second World War, you find new waves of migrants coming from parts that had been colonized by the British Empire. So there's always been wave after wave of newcomers to this area, moving through, making their first home here. Can you tell me something about the current exhibition that's here? This exhibition is called Suitcases and Sanctuary, and it was made by local children working with us to explore six important waves of migration through this area, from the French Huguenots all the way up to the latest incomers from Somalia and people coming because of later wars. But this exhibition is based upon young people, nine and ten-year-olds, working with experts to imagine what it's like to be somebody else. It's a museum of ideas, it's a museum of empathy. What is it like to be a person living in a different place, a person with a different color of skin, a person with a different language, a person with a different religion? It helps us to think about seeing the world through somebody else's eyes. What can you tell me about this part of the building? So 1720, this was the garden of the Huguenot House. And it's 150 years later that a new group of migrants, this time Jewish people coming from Eastern Europe, who built this extraordinary Victorian synagogue. It's the second oldest synagogue in all of London and the very first purpose-built synagogue to be built in the East End. So men and women would have been sitting separately, as they do in many synagogues and mosques today. The men would have been down here, taking part in the service, and the children, of course, also sitting with women upstairs on these gorgeous balconies. This is not only a place of worship, important as that was, it was a place of education and a place of community, where people came together away from these difficult, fraught, dangerous working lives. There's an exhibit here 
which probably has a personal connection for me. Well, you have an Irish background, don't you? And of course, the Irish migration story goes back many, many hundreds of years. This picks up on a particular and really tragic part of the story, the Irish potato famine. So young people today, people from all sorts of backgrounds, imagine being Irish people making their way to the nearest possible place and on the very symbol of the famine itself, our young artists wrote these reasons for coming. And of course also reminding us that the Irish, when they arrived, many people were hugely discriminatory towards them. People expected them to do the most dangerous and the most badly paid jobs. Any outstanding features? I mean, the house is full of them. One I particularly like is what we call a cupboard of languages, where many of our visitors, our volunteers, have written in different languages. Listen to the walls. Listen to the building. Listen to the stories that a building like this tells because this building is so special that it's its own exhibit. I'm visiting a hotel that was originally the town hall for Bethnal Green. I spoke with PR director Richard Massey to find out more. What can you tell me about the history of the building? So the building was a town hall for the local area until about 20 years ago. It's actually two parts. The first part was actually built in 1910, so that was kind of the Edwardian times, and then the second part was built in 1939, which is more of an Art Deco kind of style. As you walk from one end to the building, the style of architecture kind of changes. Once it stopped being used as a town hall, it started being used as a film location. So we have um, some movies like Atonement, Lockstock, Snatch were filmed here before we kind of got our hands on it. And then within two years, we kind of converted it, renovated it, and then opened it up as a, as a town hall hotel this time. I guess it kind of evokes its past while still living in current times. It seems to be different from any other hotel I've been into. So we tried to kind of avoid being that hipster hotel. We want to be true to the area. We tried to be a little bit more personal, a bit more of a boutique sort of space. We kind of wanted to link in and root ourselves with the neighborhood properly. So we commissioned a group of uh, local artists to work on pieces specific to the building. We work with local designers and craftsmen to try and bring a product that's essentially true to both the history and the future of East London. So Richard, this room we're sitting in looks very grand. Right now we're in the De Montfort Suite, which is named after Lord De Montfort. It doubles up as an apartment and an event space. The De Montfort Suite also happens to be London's largest bedroom suite. And what was it in its previous life? So it was initially a council chamber in the first part of the building. We kind of renovated the space and realised we needed a larger apartment for our guests. When we restored the building, we tried to restore it as sympathetically as possible. So we've kept as many features as we possibly could. We have all the original panelling, all the sculptures across the wall and ceiling by Henry Poole. And then, as you can see, the, the space is actually split over two floors, so it's actually a mezzanine room. I presume the rest of the hotel has been sympathetically restored in keeping with this room. As you walk through the hotel, you kind of get all the original features. We have original doors, safes, and everything, I guess, a town hall back in the day would have had. I love the lobby, it's probably one of my favourite spaces. You have all the original marbling, the marble floors, the columns, and then you have uh, the grand staircase that kind of leads up to one of the artworks by a local artist too. We have three event spaces. We have this one, which is the one for suite, 
Then we also have the council chamber, which is an original council chamber but doubles up as a space for sit-down dinners, meetings, screening room. And then we also have the Bethnal Hall, which is made up of four interconnecting rooms. Basically, you have the event, we have the space. We're pretty flexible. We have two different restaurants in the building. We have the Typing Room, which is a British seasonal menu-focused restaurant by Chef Lee Westcott. It's kind of sit-down, five, seven courses. We also have an a la carte option at lunch. And then the second restaurant is, is kind of the little sister restaurant. It's called The Corner Room. It's used as uh, the breakfast room, also lunch and dinner with more of a bistro-focused menu. We also have The Bar, which is essentially a forward-thinking cocktail list by Matt Wiley, whose, whose bar name is Talented Mr. Fox. And he kind of comes up with creative concoctions, which, which you wouldn't normally find in another bar. We also have a state-of-the-art pool and gym, which is exclusive to guests. What's unusual about the pool is that it seems to have a bit of an optical illusion. When you walk from one end to the other, it seems one side is deeper, but it's actually the same depth throughout. And was the optical illusion an intentional design? It was. It's just a little quirky addition to the design of the pool. Wandering around the building, I noticed a dog in the lobby. The hotel dog, we've only had her for about a year and a half. Her name's Dizzy, and she's actually a rescue greyhound. She's allowed to roam the hotel freely. Hotel guests can kind of meet her and she's super friendly. We're one stop from Liverpool Street, we're on the central line and about 10-15 minutes from Oxford Street so although east it is still pretty central and then in this area there's tons of little restaurants and galleries and it's essentially a hub for people that work within the creative industry so it's, it's definitely one worth visiting. Sandy Row Synagogue is a Grade 2 listed building and is the oldest Ashkenazi synagogue in London. Good morning, my name is Harvey Rifkind and I am privileged to be the current president of Sandy's Row Synagogue. This building was built in 1766 as a Huguenot chapel. It remained a Huguenot chapel for approximately 80 years and round 1840 a silk weaving machine was invented and they went from 80,000 approximately down to about 2,000 and this building was not sustainable for them and they vacated the premises. So then in 1854 50 Dutch Jewish families moved to London from Holland and settled in the area. They were economic migrants. They moved here for a better life. And as the community grew, they started to look around for a permanent place to establish their community. They knew that this building was empty and they approached the church authorities and purchased the building for £700, the building was ideal for a synagogue. It has the ladies' gallery, as you can see. The ladies' gallery was here from the Huguenot days, and even today we still keep separate seating. The idea in an orthodox synagogue is that the ladies would sit separately to the men and there wouldn't be anybody saying, well, she's very nice, I quite like her. You will notice our ark, which contains the scrolls of the Torah. 
the five books of Moses. Our scrolls are very old, they are museum quality and you will notice some of the silver that adorns the scrolls is well over a hundred years old. Either side of the ark there are two big tablets. One is the prayer for Israel which we say every week and one is the prayer for the royal family. When the Jews came to England, they wanted to become part of the English community. And as the churches did at the time, they said a prayer for the royal family. We are in contact with like-minded people that want to develop the area. Whether they are people of faith or not, we are open to everybody. We're here at the Church of St John on Bethnal Green. Let's go inside and have a look. Welcome to St John on Bethnal Green. My name is Alan Green, Alan Green of Bethnal Green. I'm the rector of St John's um, and I've been here for almost 20 years. What can you tell me about the history of this church? St John, it's on Bethnal Green, which was the, the common land here, and St John's was the first encroachment on it in 1828. Money was given to build a number of churches. The government was afraid that with growing poverty that people would not have the benefits of faith and therefore would not be very civilised and also might be tempted to revolution. And the architecture of the church? It's designed by Sir John Soane, a major British architect who designed the Dulwich Picture Gallery and the Bank of England. He did three churches and this is one of those. Sir John Soane designed this church in, in a very simplistic way. The very slight edging of, of the pillars behind me is the clue to the simple way that he built this. He wanted it very plain indeed. And that didn't go down too well with the church as a whole. There was a big fire here in 1870 and the roof burnt off. They hired another architect to repair it, um, who decided it ought to look like a proper church. So they put a lot of stuff in that hadn't been here before. They changed the design of the windows, and putting all the beams in the roof here. It's also further extended at the end of the 19th century, so all of the rear adoss was added. Again, it was much shorter and much plainer when Sohn designed it. So it's been much played with. We've got this great building and it needs quite a lot of work doing to it, but it is a real resource. We do um, a range of concerts um, and exhibitions in the church. And then downstairs in our crypt, a range of community businesses. So we teach English to people whose language is not English. And we have a community arts room where we teach stone carving and mosaic uh, and stained glass. Walking around and I notice some very interesting artwork particularly the Stations of the Cross. The Stations represent Jesus' last journey on Good Friday, from being with Pilate at his trial to the time that, that he dies and is placed in the tomb. They are generally um, quite quiet and conservative. I had been thinking about having a modern set of Stations that, whilst they had the, the traditional themes, they reflected uh, a very modern style. We commissioned Chris Gollum, a London artist, to paint them 
We began talking about it in 1999. He started painting them in 2002, and it took another six years for the, the series of 14 Stations of the Cross to be completed. And although there was commitment from the church to have them, um, we didn't have the money to pay for them. So every time we managed to find a donor, he could go away and paint the next station. So it took six years, and he's produced amazing pieces of art. I know um, from my own knowledge that there was an incident not far from here. Could you sort of tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's a, a, the saddest incident, I think, in the whole history of the, the church. Um, in 1943, in the middle of the, the war, there had been um, a, a period where there had been no bombing in this area. Um, and then during the day on March the, the 3rd in 1943, um, people suddenly heard what they thought were, were bombs falling. Um, it turned out to be um, testing of guns in Victoria Park, but people didn't know that. And people thought that um, at that moment, without any warning, that there was a, a bomb raid on. And so there was panic, and people fled to the nearest um, bomb shelters. And one of those was here at St John's, and the other one is the, the underground station just over the other side of the road. And a huge number of people piling down the stairs, and someone fell and within a matter of seconds, 172 people were crushed and died. It was never really acknowledged. Um, and people lived their lives really burying that memory inside them. And it's only been in recent years that there has been an attempt to provide a proper fitting memorial with the names of the people on it. The English restaurant is situated in a dark wood panel 17th century townhouse. I'm popping in to take a look. I'm Kay Sindon. I'm co-owner with my husband Peter of the English restaurant. We are the last independent restaurant here in Spitalfields. We've been here for 22 years now, renovated this place top to bottom and are now running a traditional English restaurant quite unusual nowadays in London. <laughs> it most certainly is, Kay, I can tell you that from my travels. And of course you've got the fantastic location here. We have. We're, uh, we're right on the edge of Spitalfields Market. We're five minutes away from Liverpool Street. What can you tell me about the history of the building? Well, it was built by the 1670s as probably a merchant's house. When you come in the door, um, the bar looks very lovely now, but when we first bought this building, there was nothing in here. We heard through the grapevine that uh, an old pub was being demolished near St Paul's. Peter went down, asked if he could buy the whole of the inside of the pub. There was lots of material there, the lighting, a lot of the panelling. He said, if you can get me a grand by this time, you can have it. So I think he had two hours or something to get it, <laughs> but he did, and luckily, because it just makes such a great space. One of the things I'm just most proud of is the lovely arch made by Peter, which goes between the bar and the dining room. And for 24 hours, he steamed these two panels and using a system of about 24 different um, clamps on a frame, he got those panels to bend to that shape. And then the little rose in the middle was carved by Johan, our French friend, and it just looks as if it belongs there. And then moving into the dining room, the panelling on the walls, designed by Nicholas Hawksmoor, we got from Christchurch. Unfortunately, the church couldn't use it in their renovations. We refitted it and the booths were also made out of material from the church, pew seats and other bits of panelling from the back. 
the staircase, which is done in an incredibly traditional way. It's made in situ, it's an open string staircase. The handrails we made ourselves, but out of oak, which was salvaged from the Savoy Theatre. And then we had our young friend, Johan, sitting down at each one of those panels for a week, carving. At the beginning of the staircase, it's arcanthus leaf, and as you move up to the upstairs, we've got tea plant, coffee plant, vine. Moving into what we call the studio, this actually used to be a warehouse for Percy Dalton. None of this roof light was, was there. We built that um, from scratch, which was quite a sort of big undertaking. So moving round into the little service area, but most importantly into our private dining room, which is a 17th century room. It's part of the original house. The panelling was mainly there. We did have to replace the panelling on the chimney piece wall. In fact, we built the chimney from that level upwards. It's pretty unusual in London to find such a room and it just makes a lovely dining room for fairly small parties, up to 16 people. Our menu is quintessentially English. We try to revive old English dishes. So give me some examples. Well, our sort of signature dish then is uh, our steak and onion pudding. We also do calves liver and bacon, which is very, very traditional. We do fish and chips, we do it really well. And we cook everything from scratch. Terrible habit, but I yeah. tend to go to the dessert menu Mine before the mains. Um, <laughs> and I noticed you did a special jelly here. Yes, it's quite odd actually, the claret jelly, because we're used to these sort of sweet jellies, aren't we? But the claret jelly is slightly odd because it's a little bit tart, because it's made of wine. Yeah. Um, and sometimes people can't quite understand it. Um, but I think it's I think it's great. I absolutely love it. I think it's well, it was fantastic. very good to see it on the menu, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. We change our menu all the time right. because things go in and out of season and we try and source things as locally as possible. So all our meat comes from Smithfield Market. All our fish comes from day boats which fish off the Kent coast. Even our coffee, for example, is from a local, local supplier who we've had for 16 years since we've been open. Uh, Andronicus Coffee, absolutely brilliant. Quality is absolutely essential. Everything we do here is quality produce. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.